Last week, we began by briefly looking at community groups. And it was kind of discovering what they are and some of the goals that we have for them. And I want to just remind you, if you weren't here last week, you can go online, actually. We do our sermons online. And you could listen to that part of the sermon, the beginning part of the sermon, and just kind of understand what they are. We've been having sign-ups over a number of weeks. Many of those groups actually are filling up and they're full. And if we need to add new groups, we'll work at that as well. But Deanna's out after the service. My wife is there, so you can answer. She can answer some of your questions also. But we dovetailed off of community groups with this idea of relationships and how we're called to be connected with each other. And we began with two key verses from John chapter 17. John 17 is so rich in theology. But look at the verses that we began with last week. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for future disciples. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. And here's how he prays for us, that they may be one even as we are one. This idea that Jesus is saying he wants the future church, the the people that will come to know him, to have this connection of profound love just like the Father and the Son has that relationship. Then verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. See, to, but to apply this oneness to how do we live our lives together as a body of, of believers? Now understand the Spirit inspired all kinds of verses through the Scriptures that really tell us and give us a picture of what it means to connect to one another. And the, what we've been walking through is the series of verses called the One Another's that were scattered through all of Scripture that point to how we can love each other, care for each other, get along with each other, and in one sense fulfill that John 17 passage. And last week we ended up, walking through, ended up in Romans, and, and today we begin with another one. Romans chapter 16, verse 16, and it says this, Greet one another with a holy kiss, All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, I need somebody to come up and we'll demonstrate this. Um, No, we won't do that. Um, I had my wife come up. But understand this. I've been to Poland a number of times. And in that culture, they still do this. Matter of fact, a couple times where we were attending a church and some guys came up to me and they gave me a kiss on the cheek. Now understand, you know, when you're from the United States, it's just you kind of pull back a little bit, but there's an awkwardness. But understand this, it, there's no sexual overtures to it. It's nothing even about attraction or uh, affection in any way. But in one sense, that what they did it was a greater application of this verse that we just don't experience. Now, catch this, that the backdrop of chapter 16, Paul is, is kind of closing out the letter, and he's writing a series of greetings and some exhortations about how, what he, kind of the last things he wanted to communicate to that group of people. But recognize there's so, so much more here in this particular verse than really what we catch. 
And let me give you first, if you take a notes, one of the principles here in terms of their understanding is that the principle to greet one another is a command and is not optional. This is a very direct command. And I think we, we kind of we, we casually go over this. So it's an exhortation, but catch this. It's not about the kiss. It's about the greeting. And as I studied this verse, it was kind of fun because when I read this verse and you walk through the Bible and, and you come to this passage and you kind of glance over it right away and you, and you just go, oh yeah, that's just kind of like a handshake of today. And you go, no, it really isn't. It's far more than just a handshake. It's very important and it's a command. Matter of fact, it's also stated in a number of other passages to greet each other with a holy kiss. Look, I'll put them on the screen. 1 Corinthians 16.20 All the brothers here send your greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Another church, another time, another place. In the second letter to Corinthians 13.12 Greet one another with a holy kiss. But this wasn't just Paul either. Look at 1 Peter 5.14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now we're going to lump all of these verses together in terms of because they're all one another's in that context. But let me give you the, really uh, the key point or one of the key points here. And if you're taking notes, I, I said it this way. The command to greet each other is given to demonstrate a unity and a union of people who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, maybe to say it differently, it's a symbolic gesture of connectedness, of being in Christ together. Now, now to unpack this a bit, I want to use an illustration. If you were a secretary of state or some important government official and you went from United States over to another country, one of your allies, that when those, when those two parties get together, when that maybe an ambassador or a secretary of state, when they come and meet that other person, there is a formal greeting time that takes place. Now, now understand that it varies from culture to culture. Uh, I remember when there was a little bit of a stir when uh, in uh, Japan when they bow down. We don't view, we kind of view that as a negative. For them, it's just a greeting. If you're in Italy or Poland, it can be a kiss. For us, it tends to be a handshake. But also catch this: there have been a number of times over the years where when presidents have gone overseas, I don't know if you realize it, that that they've been snubbed. In, you know, one sense, they come out to hold their hand and whatever, and the other person won't shake their hand. What does that signify? It signifies this. There's, there's a break in relationship. There's something going on between the, con the countries at that point that, are, that is caused for hardship and trouble. But if it's so, it's refused, it's a signal again that something is wrong. It's a wedge. See, that kind of in one sense is at the heart of the opposite of this, that there's an important aspect to greet each other. Matter of fact, it flows. Let me put up another verse on the screen, Romans 15:7. This is the one we ended with last week. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. 
And we pointed out last week, this is far more than just tolerating each other. See, are we willing to receive and accept people into our lives? And this greeting is a symbol of accepting people. If they are another follower of Christ, we are called to be symbolic in accepting them because of our union in being in Christ. Now there's a challenge, and there was a challenge for this church. Matter of fact, in one of the commentaries that I read this week, I came across a quote, and he said this, In Paul's day and his culture, greeting one another with a holy kiss caused Christians to do that which was unnatural and even culturally unacceptable. See, this he commanded them to do this. And it was a, a gesture in one sense of something that was much deeper than what we think in terms of a handshake. Matter of fact, to, to kind of push it farther for your notes, I said it this way. The kiss, the greeting and the kiss was a gesture of deep connection, of unity and acceptance. Paul was calling them to demonstrate oneness with each other. But you you might ask, well, why was it repulsive? Why did this author say it was repulsive and detestable? Well, here's where we have to understand the nature of that church. If you go back to that era, and you'll realize that some of the first people who came to Christ were the Jews. And, And then all of a sudden, Gentiles came to Christ. Those that hadn't grown up in the Jewish faith. And do you know what the attitude was toward most Jews, toward a Gentile? Jews were very proud and they looked at the Gentiles and said, hmm, inferior. That's how they viewed them. And understand them coming and begin to worship together. But not only that, think of it this way. Male and female. In the Roman culture, if, if the woman, especially if they weren't from a rich background, for women they were kind of viewed as the servant to the husband. There wasn't equality, there really wasn't dignity, there wasn't worth. And understand when Paul and Christianity came about that the, the worth and the dignity of women rose. But all of a sudden they started to meet together for worship. And that would have been uncomfortable. But even another one, back then, the wealthy. You didn't associate with poor people. Yeah, you ignored them. And all of a sudden, a church starts to rise up, and a wealthy comes to know Christ, and a poor person comes, and they're sitting in the same room together. But even beyond that, there was, if you were wealthy, you probably had slaves. Now, we would, they're not like necessarily like the United States, more like an indentured servant. So it's this idea that in one sense you sort of owned them, but they were obligated to you. And so you have this wealthy person come to Christ, and then his servant, his indentured servant, slave comes to Christ, and they begin to worship in the same place, and then Paul tells them, greet one another with a holy kiss. And they would have been going, but I, boss... um, to catch the uncomfortableness that this command would have actually demonstrated in the life of an early church. But in our culture, 
I think the challenge for us is that while we don't, I think frankly it's this, we don't have an equivalent that really fits with how do we accept people and invite them in something that symbolizes the unity because we both are, are a child of God. And when you think about it, are there differences even though in every church? The answer is yes, there are. Even back then, there were differences, there are differences today. You think of people believe different doctrinally. People dress differently. There's different colors of skin. There's uh, differences even in the way we look at gray areas of Scripture. And the question, well, there's, there's a looming question for your notes. I said it this way. Are we willing to demonstrate our unity in Christ? See, that was that command. And how do we get this concept even into our church? And as I ponder that, I go, a handshake doesn't cut it for us. Really. And here's the best, I think, that I could come up with. The equivalent would be for us to be very intentional in inviting people into our homes that are different, that we normally wouldn't invite. You know what? We don't have a lot of skaters and a lot of bikers that attend this church. But what happens if they come into the church? Are we willing to open up our lives and accept them and in one sense symbolically greet them if they know Christ, are we willing to greet them as a brother and sister in Christ? See, our greetings are to be an expression of our unity and our oneness with Jesus. But applying it even farther, as I was pondering and go, okay, what about Sunday morning? How about shaking hands with each other? Now, I think here's the challenge. We kind of view this as common courtesy, a polite gesture. And I don't think that the challenge doesn't go far enough where it is really an expression of saying we are in Christ together. And here's the tension in churches, all churches. We can begin to develop cliques in churches. Groups of people where Sunday morning you only go to those groups of people and you welcome them. But the challenge is, is that when, when that happens in a church, I think really what it is, is a socially acceptable form of sin. If we're really not willing to greet each other in that profound way. You know, young people as well, if you're young here, you go, how do you do that even in a school system? Where you know that there's other uh, young people who know Jesus there's this place where you're called to greet them and to accept them into your lives as well. And remember this, when we do this and we do it well, I think back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. See, that's an act of worship when we accept people and we greet them and we, in that form and we acknowledge that we are one together. See, and we just thought this was about a kiss, didn't we? Let's move on to another one. Another one, another. 1 Corinthians 1.10. By the way, I'm using the, the NIV on this. Uh, some versions, again, some of the passages don't have the one another's, depending on your version. But this one, it's still there. And look how it reads. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. 
so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, the context of this little one another, uh, up through chapter verse 9 here, it's the introduction, kind of a bunch of greetings to the church. And this verse 10 starts the main body of this letter. And that phrase, agree with one another, is far more than just agree doctrinally. And I think that's what we tend to gravitate. But when some of the other translations, they do it, they, uh, they do it like this. No distinction between each other. Be in perfect harmony with, the, with, an, uh, with one another. You catch there's a relational sense that really this is about a relational understanding of agreeing with each other. Now, the truth is, the church here in that day was in trouble. There was great disagreement. Division ran deep. And verse 10 begins Paul's addressing that issue of division within the church. And it goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 21. But without taking a couple months and looking at the divisions, uh, let me give you one, one reason why division within a body between believers hurts the church. And it comes again from John chapter 17 as he prays for us. Look at this again on the screen. That they may become perfectly one, there's that oneness, so that... The world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. See, why do we, does a church have to be in agreement with each other? Well, division results in basically the gospel being thwarted. The light of the gospel begins to fade. And maybe to say it this way, the church's light, the light that we're supposed to shine out, when division grows, the light shrinks and gets less and less. Now, I don't have time to dig into every division of what they were dealing with, but Paul here, very in the next couple of verses, deals with this issue of rival factions. See, the people in this church, they had become concerned and they were following people and kind of lining up behind people and following specific groups and they was kind of their leader, so it was fracturing the church with different groups of people. And, and there, so there was very popular teachers that some were going this direction, some going this direction. Their doctrine actually was different between the different teachers. And, and now even when you apply that today, we don't have to be very old to realize division still exists in this church in this day and age. And the di different viewpoints keep dividing people. But let me put on the screen a couple ways of division takes place as applied to this passage. I said it this way, division can begin when people become groupies of certain leaders and certain personalities. We begin to follow very specific people. And a second one, division can begin when people come to believe that they have a corner on what is the right doctrinal truth. And oftentimes, these go together. Because these teachers back then, they all espoused a certain flavor of doctrine even in that early church. But the challenge is, we recognize that's maybe not so uncommon as we think. 
And can we always stop that? Do you recognize in the evangelical world there's no central authority like a pope? The pope has the right to say this is what the meaning of the text means, of what the scriptures are all about. And So what do we do with that? We have to live with it. And I'm not sure that we want to set up a Supreme Court type system and take the, let's take the disagreements to the Supreme Court. See, that's the challenge. But you know, I have to admit, as I was studying this when I was younger, I probably would have to put myself as a, as a groupie with some of these teachers and because of certain doctrines. And we realize that, you know what, the nature of teaching is people get behind somebody and they agree with what they're saying and they begin to follow them. But there's a danger in that. And we only begin to listen to him or her or their books or their stuff. And we exclude everything else. And then style gets in the way. And we like a certain style of preaching because, you know what, it really oh, makes me feel good. Now, I do need to interject something here. I'm not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. I hope you're not hearing that. I believe it does, and it's why we have a doctrinal statement as a church, and I'm in full agreement with it. But we must admit that as we begin to grow in Christ, that we have some differences of belief as we move forward in our life. How we interpret things. I don't know if you know this, but within young people today, kind of in that 20s category, there's a real resurgence of what's called Reformed theology. It's very attractive to that generation. So understand that can happen in churches of even today, and it happened and it was going on in that as a division in the in church in Corinth. Matter of fact, they believe one of the doctrinal issues there, it just hints at it early and they deal with it later, is the issue of baptism. You know, and thinking back, I was in a Baptist church one time where you had to be baptized in order to become a church member. That's a doctrinal difference as to how, whether we agree or disagree. But the danger is that people begin to believe that a particular doctrine or theology is the sum and the substance of all truth. And, but here's the reality. All of you have a theology. All of you have a belief system. And I'm going to say this. Every area has some problematic areas. And, and so today, there are Calvinists and there are Arminians and there's Wesleyans, there's Dispensationalists, there's Covenant theologians, there's Hyper-Calvinists, Reformed, there's Neo-Reformed, Trinitarian different types of theology that are surrounding different places within the church. I had a pastor's prayer fellowship here this last uh, Thursday. We got together, there's about 14 of us, and the interesting, if you walked around, the different theology that was in that room, it was some significant differences. But see, the tendency is for us to want to follow people. And, and we divide up the church like this, and you know what, I'm going to follow John Piper. No, I'm going to follow Bill Bright. No, I'm going to follow Billy Graham. Uh, you know what, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. You know what, I like Francis Chan. I follow, I follow somebody else. And that was an issue in that church. Look at verse, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, verse 11, next three verses. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you catch what he's doing here? He wants this to be a one another element where there's peace, there's harmony. And it's not taking place. And they're making certain men and certain doctrines as most important. And Paul is saying, you guys, you lose something. You forget something. It's a threat to John 17, to oneness. It's a threat to the church when we begin to look and start choosing even our favorite teachers. And, and you know what? We all have, I think, if you're a reader or you listen on the radio, a lot of us have a favorite preacher. You know, and for me, it's not me. There's lots of others that I would choose. But there's this exclusiveness that was taking place, and Paul is concerned about it. And unfortunately, it becomes the norm in many churches of today. And we live in a culture where we become consumers about, around what is taught. I mean, following certain preachers and certain teaching. Um, when I was at Lakewood one Sunday years ago, uh, I was on to preach and I usually attend, get up and get there pretty early. And it was about 8.15, the service was at 9. And I got a telephone call, and, and it was, good morning, this is Ken. And they go, who's preaching today? And I go, me. <laughs> and I wanted to go, and who is this? <laughs> they, they were choosing whether to come or not based on the teaching. Who was going to be up front? You see, the challenge is that Paul gets that, and it's a problem in this particular church. But Paul does something here, and he shows such wisdom. And he does something that many people don't catch in this passage. Paul walks a line, and he stays away from taking sides. He refuses to say, this one follow, this one don't. He doesn't do that. Now, I realize he goes after false teachers in other passages. But what does he do? He points to Jesus as the central issue in the unity of getting along. That phrase, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying by not focusing on Christ and by you following these different teachers, what you are doing is you're dividing Christ to say it a different way. You're slicing up Jesus. You're slicing up Him and a little bit of Christ in everybody. Now, there was, I have to say this. One of the things that I appreciated about spending some time at seminary was they forced you to struggle with some things. Uh, matter of fact, I, are you aware of the differences between a Bible college 
and most seminaries, and, and I would say most because both of them can overlap, most Bible colleges do this. You go there and they teach you the correct doctrine. They tell you what the right doctrine is, even if some of them are wrong. Okay, You go to a seminary and you go to a theology class and what they do is they force you to read the four different views on a particular area. And then you have to write a paper as to what you, are, what you believe. And then you have to defend it. And understand what they're trying to do is they're getting, they're trying to get men to think about and to think about what they believe. And so they're trying to teach them how to think versus what to think. And we live in a world where the challenge is we teach people what to think. And the internet, I believe, reinforces that type of thinking. And, and so it becomes normal for people, when they get excited about something, to find those authors and those teachers that are telling exactly what they want to hear. So they only listen to those people that they agree with. But see, Paul understood that. And he knew this tendency to want to follow specific men. But he walks this line, he says, guys, you're not getting it. You're, it's the wrong issue. And he points them back to Christ. And the foundation of the gospel is that is central. See, God has designed teachers within the church to make a difference in people's lives. But it can also lead to dissension. And where it takes our eyes off Jesus and it puts them on men. Now, is there bad doctrine out there? I'll go, yeah, lots of it. But when you study, how do you, when you start digging into something, how do you figure this out? Well, a couple questions I would just suggest. When you read and when you study, when you listen, ask yourself the question, is this person really focusing on Jesus and God? Or is it other stuff? Do, they, do you ever you hear the great commandment coming out of what they're teaching? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Or are they teaching you to give to hate people and disagree people? Do, they, do you hear them focusing on the Great Commission? Calling people out in this world to make a difference, to make disciples, teaching others about Jesus and, and how to obey Him. See, those are some key questions as we study, as we read, as we listen to the radio. All of those need to be a filter in over as we walk ahead. See, Paul's concerned that by not doing that, it's going to tear the church apart at Corinth. And he's saying, stop chopping up Christ. But he also points out one other thing i got to throw at this at you. He, he, this phrase, was Paul crucified for you? You go, what's he asking there? What's he really about saying, when he's saying that? I think it's this. You guys, you're lifting up men. They're becoming a deity. They didn't die for you. Jesus did. I didn't die for you. It was Jesus. You catch what he's doing. 
Because they were looking at men as they could do no wrong, make no errors. They could settle all questions. And, and that is a dangerous type of attitude when we get locked into that. Is Jesus central? Let me put a quote up that I came across this week that is so pointed to this one another. And look how it reads. There is not a single Christian teacher who ever lived who can help us be forgiven for one single sin, not one. There is not a single teacher who ever lived who can heal the heart of a broken the hurt of a broken heart, or supply energy and adequacy to someone who feels worthless and unable to function in society, not one. There is not a teacher among us today or at any other time who is able, able to open the mind and open the eyes of the, of the heart and reveal to us the glory and the majesty of God, not one. That is not the work of men. That is the work of God himself. He chooses various channels through which, he, which to work, and we must allow Him the privilege of doing that. They will not all be the same flavor. They will not all have the same characteristics. We reveal our immaturity when we insist that only those with certain characteristics are the ones we will listen to or we can bless or strengthen our lives. No man is the Savior. No man can deliver us except Jesus. All are mere teachers. There is only one Lord. And he said to himself, one is your master, all are your servants and your brothers. If you'll notes, let me give you the main point. Oneness. And the one another's will win. They'll win out when we agree that Christ and the Gospel are center to our union in Christ. That is what connects us. When there's another person that I know has the Spirit of God in them, we are connected even though that I don't believe all of the same doctrines that they do. That group around the table that we met with last week, those 14 other churches that were represented, there was a oneness that we had, not because of the doctrinal differences, but because we agreed that Jesus is Lord and He's Savior and He died for us. That is the agreement that Paul is talking about. Agree with one another that Jesus is central. And the reason why we have unity is because of Him. The Christ and the cross heals the vision. And we are called to move toward Christ, focus on Him, and we learn to look at other people differently and when we know that they're in Christ, we can accept them and we can even greet them with a holy kiss. Let's stand and pray. Father, this is a, a challenging passage where how do we demonstrate our unity because of our oneness in Christ together? And Lord, your Spirit is the one that has put new life into all of those that are children of God. And, and as, as a child of God, we are called to love each other, to be at peace with one another. We're called to accept one another. 
We're called to identify with one another. So Lord, give us the wisdom of how to do that, how to demonstrate it in this world. And Lord, as we demonstrate our oneness, our, 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 our being together in Christ, it cries out your love and your desire that this world be redeemed. And Lord, you want to offer men and women salvation. And Lord, we can be used for that as we come together and learn to love each other profoundly. So help us to do that as we wrestle through all of these one and others. So Lord, we give this day to you, give this week to you. May you be honored this week. May you call us back to your Son and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So we thank you again for your love. These things we pray in your name. Amen.